Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. Now, the last time we saw that Jesus, uh, notwithstanding the death of John the Baptist and uh, personal heartache in his life, he still ministered to others. That's the Jesus that we know. And today, Jesus makes some waves in the religious community by emphasizing the preeminence of God's word over man's entrenched tradition, which leads or which includes ministering to the unclean or the outcasts. You know, every society does it, even our society, and it's a shame. Uh, maybe to make sinful man feel better, he tries to marginalize a group of people and make them feel like they're the outcasts or they're the lower class or they're the whatever the case may be. So it's just a a sinful, really, practice so those people who are pointing the fingers can feel better about themselves or an air of superiority. So we're going to see Jesus really start ministering to the Gentiles. Uh, And we're going to see a mother on Mother's Day who uh, really sacrifices and and is determined uh, to help her daughter to get well. We're going to cover that. So I'm going to start with verse 1. It says, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, let me jump to Mark 7. I'm only going to read three verses. Mark gives us a little bit more insight on this. Verse 2. It says, Now when they saw some of his, Jesus' disciples, eat bread with defiled hands, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders when they come from the marketplace. They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Interesting. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they're the religious of the religious. They're coming from Jerusalem to scrutinize the actions of the Son of God. Now, if you lived in that time, and if you can read some of the old uh, writings of the rabbis, of the Mishnahs, and, and things of that nature, uh, you would find that there is a practice of full body washing, and then there's also, and there's symbolism here, there's a practice of the netalat yadayim, maybe that's where yada yada comes from, I don't know, <laughs> but they wash their hands and their cups in this uh, methodical way. Now, what happens, you say, well, how did they get to that point? God speaks in his word about being defiled. He speaks about washing. He speaks about uh, you can become defiled if you touch a dead body. But there were some obscure passages in the Old Testament that these guys took, they seized upon, and they made whole doctrines out of these passages. And the whole washing really took on a life of its own. It wasn't found in God's word. give you some example, and this is just a small list. You would have to wash your hands Uh, ceremonially, if you touched leather, if you touched a bug, before or after eating, if you came from a funeral, even if you didn't touch the dead body, uh, if you cut your hair or cut your nails, uh, after marital relations, after a nap, because while you were napping, you could have touched the unclean part of your body. This is, I'm not making this up. And lastly, the saddest part is if a Gentile walked in front of you, they were considered unclean, And back in those days, the roads were very dusty, and that unclean Gentile kicked up some dust, and that dust got on you. So if a Gentile passes in front of you, you've got to go now wash again. And the list goes on. Now, I have to tell you, um, I started to get anxiety when I started studying this. I'm like, I could never live like this. It's kind of a form of OCD in a sense. But 
you have to understand even the washing procedure. So if you, your hands were defiled, so to speak, you would have to pour the water over your hands in a certain way, it's like from top to bottom, and it would drip off your wrists, and then you would take your hands, because now the water that's on your hands is unclean from your unclean hands, so you'd have to take your hands and pour the water down in the other direction, and just to make sure that some of that water is not defiled, you would have to take the water and do it a third time. So this is a, a triple hand-washing procedure. Again, there's the spirit of the law, and there's the letter of the law. The latter was worshipped, while the mind behind the law was not. And that was the problem. And we'll get deeper into this. Verse 3. But Jesus, he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me, he's speaking to his parents, has been dedicated to the temple, is released from honoring his father or mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. So the Pharisees, the religious of the religious, came to Jesus and said, you know, they heard about the miracles, they heard about the prophecies, they heard about, um, you know, his, his status, even if you didn't believe he was the son of God, at least you believed he was a prophet. So they're coming to test him. They're coming to vet him. And what do they seize on? <laughs> not the miracles, not the teachings. They seize on, hey, you're disciples. What a bunch of heathens. They're, they're eating bread, and they didn't wash their hands the way we do it. Now, Jesus was more concerned. He wasn't concerned about man's tradition. He was concerned with their transgressing God's law to transgress, to know a law exists, and to purposely trans, to go across, to purposely violate that law. Jesus is saying, the issue is not tradition. The issue is God's commandments. You guys have gone so far away from that, we need to come back. So this is the issue. Now, there's a few uh, Old Testament passages that speak about not to curse your father or mother, to honor your father and mother, and basically, they culminate in the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. Now, in that culture, there was no social security, there was no nursing homes. When your parents became aged, you took care of them. That was your responsibility. However, if a, a child with no character or estranged from their parents to get out of it, there was a system in place. You could go to the religious leaders and say, you know, my, my land, my estate, my money, I want to dedicate it to the temple. And that was called korban. So what would happen is you would work something out with the religious system, which was largely corrupt at the time. Even non-biblical uh, sources ascribed to that. You would say, um, I just want to dedicate this to the temple. So basically you could enjoy it while you were alive, and at some point the religious leaders could take it and sell it and get money for it or whatever. But in the meantime, you could say to your parents, sorry, mom and dad, it's Corban. There's nothing I can do. It's out of my hands. You're on your own. So think about how awful that was and how indignant Jesus probably was to this religious practice. Sadly, there are also violations or perversions or traditions that have gone awry in the church today. Give something 2,000 years of men largely controlling, sucking the spirit out of it, squeezing the life out of it, and what do you have? You have problems. Martin Luther, who sparked the Reformation, his biggest problem with the church at the time was that they were selling indulgences. And basically it was, this, it was this, a system, right? A religious system where you could sin. 
And if you were wealthy enough, your sins could be bigger. You could pay bigger money and you could get off scot-free, according to God's eyes, so to speak. That was their representation. It was a very evil practice. So if you were poor, your sins couldn't be that big because you didn't have that much money to give to the church. It's a problem. Uh, salvation through the church. Many churches preach that. We don't because it's not scriptural. You don't have to come here to receive salvation. You just need Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right? So without the building, without, you know, you're stuck on a desert island, you don't know the Lord, you could be saved. <laughs> you know, you don't need the building and the people, and um, you just need the Lord. He's already died for your sins. Three, there are some that over the years say you have to celebrate these type of rites. Otherwise, you're a bad Christian. Says who? If there's anything that we do here that you don't understand, please ask. Even when we do baby dedications, I say clearly when the parents and the child are up here that this doesn't guarantee salvation for the child. This is an example. It's, it's exampled in scripture. It's also a way for you, the body, to see this young family with these children and to pray for them. There's many reasons why we do it, but it's not mandatory. Okay? Uh, we can go from some of these wealth, health and wealth doctrines, name it and claim it. God wants you to be rich. So that really, usually, the ones usually in the church there who are rich are the pastors, you know, the leadership. But God wants everybody to be rich, and if you're not, you don't have enough faith. There's an answer for everything. What does that do? That leads to doctrines of uh, 501c3, nonprofits. There was a, the government a few years ago uh, examined some of these Benny Hinn and these big millionaires and saying, you guys are abusing this. And some would say, oh, that's an assault on Christianity. I say, bring it on, because our books are in order. And you shouldn't be making millions off the, backs of Je- off the back of Jesus Christ. So we can see over 2,000 years, we can look at the Jewish system and, and point the finger, but we can also look at some in our own culture and see the same problem with this, and we're supposed to have the Holy Spirit. Seven. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, quote, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain... They worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. How clearer could Jesus be on this subject? Certain traditions over the years and some fellowships have strangled the word of God. Now, does that mean this is an assault on tradition? No. Like I said, we do baby dedications. Some churches do other things that are innocuous. They're harmless. The problem is when the tradition, something made by man, maybe obscurely found in the scripture, takes on a life of its own, it either becomes equal with God's word, or now it supersedes it. That's frightening. Okay, that's the problem there. Um, and now what takes precedent is something we have confidence in a man-made thing. There are some that are, claim to be Christians that know so much about their church history and traditions, they don't really know anything about God's word. And that's sad. Just want to read Colossians really quick. A few uh, verses here, Colossians 2, 8 through 10, and I've read this before, and I'll just touch on it because it goes really well with this. The Apostle Paul says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. There you have it. 
A few points on this, and I'll just go through it based on Jesus' words. I mean, he's, there's emphasis here. He says, hypocrite. I tell you what, one thing if we're a mature believer that we don't want to hear is somebody take a side, a side and say, you're a hypocrite. I don't want to hear that. And if I do, and I, and I own some of that, I feel terrible. Because hypocrite, if you take the word apart in the Greek, it means literally to answer from under. And what would happen was the theater at the time, you know, they didn't have, you know, DreamWorks and Pixar and all that fancy stuff. Uh, Steven Spielberg, what they had was some props. You know, you would make a little picture of a mask of a king and there'd be a stick and you would answer from under that mask. You would pretend to be that character. So it was, what a fitting word that word hypocrite is. And Jesus was saying, you guys are hypocrites. You're supposed to be the spiritual leaders. You're answering from under a mask. You're pretending to love God, but it's not coming from the inside. And sometimes believers, like I said, we have to ask ourselves that question. Am I answering from under the mask today in church? Are we playing, you know, dress up today at church, say praise the Lord, smile to our brothers and sisters, and are anything but the other six days in our lives? Would another believer be shocked to find out how we behave at our workplace or with our extended family? So hypocrite, we can all play the hypocrite at one point or another. As a matter of fact, uh, the apostle Paul rebuked Peter, the apostle, the great apostle Peter, and called him a hypocrite. He owned that hypo hypocrisy at the time. And he, of course, he repented for it. But two, we get in trouble when we go beyond what is written. 1 Corinthians uh, 4.6 basically tells us that. Do not go beyond what is written. When we start going beyond what's written in the scripture and elevating it as if it is scripture, it becomes a problem. So it's a good, safe boundary for us to fall into. Three, it's easier to do than to be. What do I mean by that? The Pharisees were doing. They were playing a part. And again, I will tell you, in my... Uh, you, you've been a Christian long enough, I've been a Christian long enough, I have played the hypocrite before, and I've repented for it. All right? Maybe a moment, maybe for, with a, a particular situation, but it's easier to do than be. So to do, we could just do a tradition. We could just sing a song and he say, here God, you happy? I did it. No, he's not happy. He wants you to be. You see, be comes from the inside. Do is on the outside. God's like, I want your heart. Open up your heart to me. And not because he wants to hurt us, because he wants a relationship with us. Four. Lastly, he says, Jesus says, in vain they worship me. In vain. It's worthless. To put on all that religious show. And again, that's why many, and you read the statistics, especially the youth, are turned off by church. Because of the show. Just because they're young doesn't mean that they're not discerning. Doesn't mean that they don't get it. Doesn't mean they can't see hypocrisy. It's a problem in the church. So in vain they worship me. Jesus says, you could put on all the show that you want. It may work. I, I could put on a show for all you here. A good show. Tap dance, a little soft shoe, you know, a little vaudeville act. But the bottom line is that he knows the truth. And he's like, it doesn't mean anything to me. Do it all you want, full men, full women. I can see through you. Good, good points to remember. Verse 10. Then he, Jesus, called the multitude and said to them, and I believe in their hearing, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. 
Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus is going to expound upon the in and out of the mouth, but I want to, and we're going to get to that, but I want to really focus on the disciples for a moment. I could just picture the disciples. Now remember, you've got the Pharisees coming from Jerusalem. Their robes were probably very fancy. They probably had certain embroidery that some would see their robes and say, oh, these guys, everybody make way. Here comes the religious guys. And they're scrutinizing Jesus' disciples. And he's telling them, basically, you're hypocrites. Your worship is in vain. I could just picture some of the disciples tugging on Jesus' tunic going, Psst, Lord, do you know who these guys are? Don't offend them. They have power. Right? I, I love it. And Jesus, and he really, even after they say that, he ramps it up. You see, they start to succumb to peer pressure. They start to succumb to fear of man. And all of us, in some point of our lives, succumb to this. The fear more of those who are before you than him. Because, Lord, I got to do what I got to do. I got to live in this world. I got to live with that person. I've got to exist in this job. But let's just gear it more towards the religious system. And there is. There's fear of man. There's peer pressure in a church as well. Just because all the other believers are doing it doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's in the Bible. Don't succumb to it. The disciples succumb to it. Okay? And he offended them. Now, there are some Christians that just, they just, that's their thing, their MO. They like to go around offending people. And that's not reflected in Scripture. However, there is a time to offend. And the biggest one is, Jesus said, if a little one is stumbled. These pomp and circumstance religious leaders were coming in with their parade and they were uh, scrutinizing everyone. And uh, Jesus rebuked them and offended them because they were stumbling the common person. The common person thought, gee, I'd like to be holy and righteous and get next to God, so I've got to be like those guys and listen to them. Jesus is saying, no, forget it. Put it out of your mind. 13. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, they will both fall into a ditch. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? Some were good stalks and shoots and some were weeds. And Jesus says, the ones that my father has not planted will be uprooted. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they say. I don't care how they sing. I don't care even the times, how much of the Bible they know, because Satan knows the Bible as well. My father hasn't planted them. They'll be uprooted. Now, that's a little hard for us to swallow because we live in an age of the ecumenical church, the emergent church. You know, we're, we're, ta- we're starting to hear s- hell and, and sin. Oh, it's starting to get sanitized. We don't offend people with that from the pulpit. Doesn't matter. God's word is eternal. These guys are going to be uprooted, and if they didn't repent, they're going to be eternally damned. That's, that's a hard one to swallow, isn't it? However, the blind leading the blind. It's one thing to be spiritual blind yourself, but then to be spiritually blind and follow somebody who you think is a leader, and they're spiritually blind, and you both fall into a spiritual ditch. Whatever I say from this pulpit, you check with the word of God. Let me tell you something. There's plenty of organizations out there. There's plenty of churches. There's a lot of cool churches now. Not a whole lot of Bible. A lot of fanfare. A lot of, a lot of uh, platitudes. But you need to check what everyone says with scripture. And I'm not, that's why we have Bibles out. I'm not offended. You go pick it up. Pastor Joe said this. Oh, it is in there. Or it's not in there. Let me ask him a question. Go do it. Fifteen. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, 
Are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Is it me or does it always look like they're putting Peter up to this stuff? You know? like, remember the Life cereal commercial, the boys are eating and mom puts like something really healthy looking in front of them and they don't want to try it. And they say, look, it's Mikey. He'll eat anything. And he likes it. Hey, Peter, I don't want to ask the question. Have Pete, Peter will do anything. You ask him. Uh, <laughs> okay, so let's go into a little biology here. The digestive process. Uh, what goes into the mouth? Do you realize that the alimentary canal and the whole, uh, from the beginning to the end, is um, outside of the body? Except for a few check valves here and there. Uh, when you put something in your mouth, your digestive system is really outside. Try to think of that conceptually. And what happens is your body takes from the outside, kills the bacteria, the stomach acids. Uh, it takes the nutrients. It breaks things down with acids and bases. And then when it's done, it's, it's eliminated. Okay, It's gone. That's a great way of him saying that. So it has nothing to do with spirituality. All the, the whole digestive tract does is it's there for an organism's survival. Right? So he, he's making that point there. Now, so, so, so that it has nothing to do with spirituality. What comes out of the mouth, right, that's a different story. In other words, your words. Where do they come from, your words? Well, they come from your vocal cords, cords, but there's nerves that are connected to your brain, and the mind thinks. And so what happens is whatever comes out of your mouth comes from the heart. It comes from who you are. Realize this and say this to yourself. What I say defines me. What constantly comes out of my mouth, especially when it's unchecked uh, by the, the check valves in the brain saying, don't say that, that defines me. It's a reflection of what I'm thinking at the time. So Jesus makes a, he takes something that's physical and he makes a spiritual truth out of it. So there's an interesting article and it says that, I read this, okay, it probably was done with taxpayer money, this, this great epiphany, profanity and cursing helps to alleviate pain. That caught my attention, <laughs> so I had to click onto it. Basically what it was saying is if you have a hair-triggered temper and you're prone to outbursts and you stub your toe, if you start and start cursing and using profanity, it feels better. Now, I don't know how they figure this stuff out. I mean, did they line up 10 people and make them put their hands out and hit them all with a hammer and say, how does that feel? You know, now curse and tell me how that feels. <laughs> Listen, I'm not suggesting you do this, especially not here. Okay. But I can see the point, right? Uh, what, who we are, what defines us is, it, it, you know, the, in the multitude of our words, if you start taking them together, it's really a reflection of who we are. Understand? So, what, what proceeds out of our mouth on a regular basis? Now, before you answer that, you might want to ask somebody who's close to you or who lives with you. Don't take the easy way out and say, oh, I can tell you. I'm always speaking about the Lord. Hmm? You know? <laughs> what are you always talking about? When we start to go through this, we can see a few things. If I'm always talking about what I want, what I want to do to my house, what I want to buy, I might be materialistic. 
if I'm always giving excuses for why I can't be somewhere, I might have a problem with commitment. If I'm always talking about my looks or how I want to change my appearance, I might be vain. You see what I'm saying? The multitude of words is a reflection of our heart. You know, um, I tell you, my desire in my heart is, is to win people to Christ. You know, to me, that's the overarching theme. No matter what we do in this place, no matter what outreaches we do, I just have a heart for the lost. Being a road cop for 20 years, I can tell you that I know that life is short. And, and I see death, and it's not pretty. It's not like what they see in the funeral home. People are mangled. They're missing body parts. You can see that the spirit is gone. So I'm, I think that that has affected me in my zeal uh, to see people saved. Verse 20. He says, but to eat with unwashed hands. Now, what he's saying again is what's on the outside doesn't defile us spiritually. It's from within. We don't catch evil as we would catch a cold. Right? You understand the whole germ idea, and it gets past the defenses and starts to multiply the microbes, and now we're under attack from you know, the rhinovirus or whatever the case may be. But uh, what Jesus is saying is it doesn't work that way with evil. You don't catch it from the outside. It comes from the inside. And doing things that are external doesn't correct the problem. I'll tell you this, uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know the heart, the Bible tells us. And the truth is we're in need of repentance every day. Every day we're in need of repentance and a stronger relationship with the Lord. That's the cure, not doing external things. 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, True, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. I love this portion of scripture. Just a little background. Uh, Tyre and Sidon was on the northwest border of Israel. If you went a little further out, the Phoenician people, you had your cities of Tyre and Sidon. They were seafaring people. They um, They were Gentiles. And this was definitely a Gentile woman, if we take all the Gospels together. And she calls him Lord and Son of David. Now, this this would be unusual for a Gentile to approach Jesus. Remember, if you study the Bible and you go through all the, the historical references, go back to that time, it would be very unusual for her to say that to him. Now, some would say, and I've heard this, that the reason Jesus didn't answer her was because it was inappropriate for her, a Gentile, to address him as the Messiah, now, I would just say, maybe she's just being submissive or, or acquiescing to him. There's some good debate on that. I will tell you this in advance, because if you look at the Bible and you read it, and you say, boy, that was mean, because we can do that sometimes, we're not meditating on it. He knew from the beginning that he was going to heal her. So let's get that straight, and let's, let's talk about this. Uh, I believe he was testing her resolve, but I also believe he was testing his disciples, I think a lot of times he wanted to see what their reaction was so he could teach them something about themselves, okay? 
So that's what's going on here. Uh, Their response is, send her away. She cries out after us. Maybe she's a nuisance. Give her what she wants. She can leave us alone. And I would ask this question. Like the disciples, are we sometimes impatient with others? Sure we are. (laughs) I've been impatient. Is someone's crisis because we're in a hurry, a missed opportunity? Right? Are we so in a hurry? Are we so busy that there's a, a, a ministry right in front of us that the Holy Spirit is leading us to, but we just, we just don't have time for it? You know, we'll purposely put blinders on. That's what we do as people, but Jesus didn't do that. And I want to look at the three stages of this woman's pleading with Jesus. Number one. The first thing she does, the messianic uh, references. Is it possible that she was starting to say these things to kind of fluff him a little bit, to, um, you know, to make him, flatter him, to make him hear what he wanted to hear? In prayer, do we ever do that? Lord, I, I really want this. And I really, Lord, think this is a great opportunity for you to show your glory. So, so you have to do this. You know what I'm saying? God doesn't work the way we manipulate each other. And I, listen, I've been there. I've done it in prayer. Oh, Lord, what an opportunity. This is, this is going to be great, Lord. I could see you working here. It might not be his will. So we move past that first stage. The second stage, desperation. Lord, please help me. No fluff, no titles. I, I really need you. We've been there before, haven't we? When we pray to the Lord. I'm desperate, Lord. I'll do anything. Still not over. The third, a complete brokenness. To the point where this woman is actually referring to herself as a little dog. Now, in the Greek, now let's, let's watch this for a second before you get upset. In the Greek, if you call someone a dog, it was derogatory. However, there's two words in the Greek for dog. The word used here is actually puppy. Totally different idea. He wasn't um, trying to get her to humiliate herself. But what was going on was she knew and he knew that in those days they didn't have nice utensils and linens when they ate. Oftentimes you would eat the meat or you would eat the food, and when your hands were dirty, you would take the bread, and to us it sounds so heathen, doesn't it? (laughs) But they would just wipe their hands with the bread, and you could imagine when the kids ate, there was stuff all over the floor. So the little puppies, they love that. I mean, they get some, some bread with some meat juices and a piece of chicken falls off or whatever. So you understand the culture back then. She was referring to herself not as a dog, but as a little puppy that eats the crumbs that fall from the, the table of the children. Now, this is a complete brokenness in her that opens the door for her, her to understand her spiritual deficit. And brokenness is a good thing. Let me ask you a question. Who this morning, I'm not going to raise my hand, who is really looking forward to being broken? No hands? No takers? <laughs> when it happens, it's rough. But none of us are looking, hey, Lord, I don't ever pray, to be quite honest with you. Lord, please break me. Please completely humble me so I can learn something. When I am in that position, I say, okay, you got my attention. What is it that you want me to learn? But I don't think anybody looks forward to brokenness. But in this situation, she understood more about herself and more about the Lord through this brokenness. Coupled with humility, uh, sometimes that pride is an obstacle to answered prayer. Now, I don't know what this woman's life was. I don't know what her history was. But she gets to this point where the Lord opens that door to prayer being answered. She says in the end, or Jesus says to her, or does he say to her, Lady, 
You're, you've been following us for miles. You're such a pain in the neck, so I'm just going to heal your daughter and, and please be gone. Of course not. That's not the Jesus that we know. He says emphatically, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And I could just in my mind picture Jesus with a big smile on his face. He loves it when we believe in him. He loves it when we're persistent. And there's a few points to ponder about this. Remember, pagan woman, outside of God's covenant people, don't know how much she knew about the Lord, how how well her theology was. But let's go into it. This woman displayed resolve, patience, and desire. Do we? Oh, sure we do. If we're going to put a barbecue grill together, we have a lot of resolve, patience, and desire, don't we? Because we want to grill those hamburgers. You know, if we're going for a degree, I speak to a lot of young people. Yeah, I'd love to get involved with the Lord, but I'm really working on midterms and finals. See, there's a lot of things we put resolve, patience, and desire into, but what about the things of the Lord? When it gets hard, are we tempted to quit because it's too hard and I have enough stress in my life? We're talking about your eternal salvation here. So one, one thing we can learn from this woman. Two, Jesus gives the highest commendation of faith not to God's covenant people. Two people. Number one, the centurion, the Roman pagan centurion. Remember that story? And this Gentile woman. Oh, great is your faith, he says. Do we have the same faith? Is it sometimes that we do church so long that there becomes a stagnancy and we need to be shaken out of that? Maybe pray, Lord, I'm feeling a little stagnant. Do something in me, you know? Three, this woman took some major hits to her ego in her banter with the Lord, but she persisted. Now remember, today we live in a society that worships the ego. Self, us, we, me, you know, all those magazines. It's all about me. Get whatever you want. Some, unfortunately, are so brainwashed by this that they only will find a church where nice things are said every Sunday morning. That if there's something a little negative or a little convicting, they run because they don't want to hear it. Now, I will say this, and I I called him this week. Raise your hand if you know Pastor Luis Solis. (laughs) A lot of you do. He spoke here. Uh, I came from that school. And when I, I was young, I was in my 20s, I was on top of the world. And I made a profession of faith, but there was still a lot of stuff in me that needed to go. And he sat me down and he proceeded to tell me that I was a a terrible husband and an uncommitted father. And I'm like, who is this guy? But the thing is, my marriage was struggling. And what caused me not to get into an altercation with him was the fact that I knew he and his wife had a good marriage. Some of you I may have to talk to in the next few months. Not send anybody up, but some of you I have spoken to. And praise God, you've come through with shining. You know, I've been spoken to. I don't think that should ever go away. I don't think we should ever get to a point where we do church and we don't say hard things to each other. Because that iron sharpens iron, especially when it comes to men, with men. That's an important part of what we do as believers. So I would say that if I ran and, and I had an altercation, I said, I'm not listening to you anymore. I don't want you mentoring me. I don't think I'd be here today. Because the Lord had to do a lot of things in my life. I look out at this church and say, this is the Lord. I allowed him to work in my life. So that's important. Four, the religious leaders wouldn't have given this woman the time of day. As a matter of fact, if she passed by them, they probably would have done the hand-washing thing. All right? They alienated the Gentiles. They alienated some of their own Jewish countrymen. What an opportunity they missed. 
as believers, as a church, as the church in the United States, do we alienate some? There's a lot of people out there. There's people right under our noses, living next door to us, extended family members, people at our work that are in need of salvation, that are desperate, that are going through something, and they don't know the way. But right here, we have the answers. We can show them the way, right? Is that an interest in our lives? Something interesting happened in the news. Osama bin Laden was killed by Navy SEAL Team 6. There's a lot of rejoicing over it. And I believe in Romans 13. I believe in our, our, what our military has to do. But at the same time, I think many others will rise in his place. There'll be a power vacuum. And I don't think there's enough bullets to take care of all the fanatics out there. But you know what does work? The power of Jesus Christ. Some names, Walid Shubat, Mossab Youssef, son of Hamas. Just read one verse in the scripture. Started reading more. Had a, had a heart conversion renounced his terrorist ways, son of Hamas. Now he's, he's trying to flee from his, his former terrorist buddies who are trying to kill him because they think he's an infidel. This man's life was changed and he's affecting others. It's amazing how many of these former terrorists, so, uh, somebody wrote a book, Jesus, a friend to terrorists, and, and in a sense meaning that he has the power to change them, to become productive members of society and to bring others into the kingdom. It's amazing. So I guess as the church, what are we doing? Are we so engrossed? Listen, the summer's here. I've had this discussion with other, other pastors. Every time the warm weather comes, the, the, the herd starts to thin. You're not going to get a touchy-feely message from me. I'm telling you that right now. You know, It's just not going to happen. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I like to be real, keeping it real. Are we so engrossed? Are, is our calendar so filled up with what we want to do for the summer? that we forget that there's a world that's dying and going to hell out there. It's, it's, it's a question that we have to ask ourselves. He said this woman wasn't going to give, be given the time of day by, by uh, the religious leaders, but Jesus came and he ministered to her. And five, you see this woman's resolve. Again, as a Gentile, maybe not knowing the things of God, maybe not completely understanding the love of God, not having the Holy Spirit. She still had such a desire for her daughter who was sick on Mother's Day, right, the Mother's Day message, that she would do anything for her daughter to be healed. That's awesome. And then six, commitment. She was committed to her daughter and Jesus was committed to her. Commitment. I have a lot of parents that come to me and they're concerned about their teens. And the overarching thing that I need to say is, if your teens don't see a commitment from you, don't be surprised when they go off to college that they're very blasé about their faith because they grew up not seeing the commitment in you. The best thing you can do for your teens is make a commitment to the things of God and let them see that. A lot of good lessons in here. Verse 29. And Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them those who were lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. If you follow this route, and I I like to go to the biblical map, uh, it's a northwest portion of Israel. He's skirting probably the southern port of of the Sea of Galilee. And then he goes up to the mountains. So what you see is this uh, really a southeastern direction if you're looking at the, the map of Israel. 
So you see that happen. And really what he's doing is he's going to the area of where Decapolis is, which is largely almost entirely Gentile. Right? So you see a shift in the ministry happening here. Because add that to verse 31, they glorified the God of Israel. So all these Gentiles that were ignored for so long are praising the God of Israel and, and seeing what Jesus is doing and, and being uh, changed. And, 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 you know, they're just getting a different perspective. 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them on the way hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? If you take all the details together, this is a different feeding. And I went through them uh, detail by detail than the one we spoke about last Sunday, where he, he did that feeding before. So the disciples ask again, where are we going to get enough bread to feed them all? Are they kidding? <laughs> but then, listen, I'm going to take you to where we do the same thing. I'm going to take you there. But uh, they just saw the miracle that he did before was a few of them sleeping. I don't know what was going on there. But what it does show is it shows that they're human. Let's move on. Verse 34, last few verses. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven, and a few little fish. And he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Now, if you look at the large basketfuls in the Greek, it's a different word from the baskets. And, you know, I just had to do this because I, I love to really go into the intricacies and find some nuances that we might find. I have a Hebraic Roots Bible and a Greek Roots Bible, and I go through all of them trying to find, you know, putting the whole picture together. Now, the baskets were different than the last healings. These baskets in the Greek were more like large hampers with lids. And this is what was taken up in the fragments. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? See, that's what God can do in your life and mine. You can start with very little, and by the time you're done with him, or he's done with you, and you're done walking and watching what he does, look at those big hampers filled with fish and bread. Wow, we can feed some more people with this later on. This is what God does, the overflow. I love that about my God. And I will say this, that let me go back to the disciples um, marveling or questioning again, how are you going to feed all these people? Because we know that it wasn't that long ago that, that he did do it and they saw it. Tell me that we, can't, that we don't do that in our lives. Now, I've been a part to praying for somebody and you know, I'll leave or, 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 or at the same time, the person will say to me, just at the time that you prayed for that person, they were healed. Now, please, I'm not taking credit because there's plenty I pray for that don't get better. It's the Lord. But what's amazing is I've seen incredible miracles in my life, and I've been blown away. But we have a tendency in human nature to look back at those as the glory days. We should never get that into our mindset. Wow, remember what God did three years ago. Wow, and we're still talking about it. God can do that today as well. I believe in that. I believe that God still works miracles today. 
So sometimes we, we do things or we're a part of things and we think, well, that's a one-shot deal. Not true. We need to believe greater than that of our God. I believe that there's a lot of missed blessings. I think that maybe when we go to heaven, we'll see a list of mixed, missed blessings because we just wouldn't put in the faith to trust him through that. Just to, to walk in that faith, to say every day, what are, what are the amazing things that God can do in my life through me to bless somebody else? So, again, the power of God is unfathomable, it's unknowable, it's unwieldy, but it's awesome, and it's great when you're a part of it. So, in conclusion, this is the boundless characteristics of the love of God in this section. He's not looking for a hand-washing tradition. He's not looking for a tradition. That's cheap. He loves you. He doesn't care if you've got dirty hands or dirty feet or whatever the case may be. He loves you. He wants your heart. Two, the outcasts and the unclean of society Jesus ministered to and no doubt brought many of them into the kingdom of heaven. If them, then you. Regardless of what you've been through, regardless of what you've done, if them, then you as an individual. Three, I've had, I've had actually some come up to me after service and, and uh, have the desire to make that profession of faith, but they let their own limitations hold them back. Now listen, I'm not the best orator, and I'll tell you what, the best orator can read you the Bible and still not impress upon you the full gravity of how much God loves you. I can only say it in words. His love just blows this away. No matter what I say, multiply that exponentially. If you have any question in your mind, will he accept me? If I go up there and, and I, I desire to follow him, will he cast me away? If you have any question, get that out of your mind. Because God wants, desires a relationship with you. He already started the first, he already started the olive, olive branch by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. And I'll say this to you. you. You may say, and I've heard this, well, I might let this one down or my family member down. Or, listen, you will. That's the human experience. We fall and we let God pick us up again. Sure, you're going to let people down. You're going to let me down. I'm going to let you down. It's the human experience. But don't let that stop you from your walk with him. So I would just say this. On a day when we celebrate the enigmatic, the puzzling, the unknown love that a mother has for her child, remember, God put that into a mother. The Bible says that in the last days that the love of many will grow cold and some of that motherly affection will disappear. It'll be gone. And we can, as we read the news, we see some of that and it's, it's disturbing. We know we're in perilous times when mothers are, uh, I'm not even going to say it, I mean, just stuff that I see through the law enforcement window and stuff uh, due to their children. It's a really dark time that we're in. But please understand that God loves you and he desires a walk with you and that's available to you today. Let's pray. Father in heaven,